We're going to be in Genesis chapter 47. As I say, as we come to approach the end of this, we really see uh, Joseph setting the example of what it means to be a Christ-honoring man of God. He really sets the example of what it means to be like, do life like Jesus would. He was the Old Testament example that they had of the Christ figure. And when they walked through this, you could see some places where you would obviously know that. Okay? Now, we're going to read through this passage, and most of the time, I think every time, when it says Jacob in the New Living Translation, that really is translated into Israel. And when we talk about Jacob as Israel, we talk about it as promised things to come, right? That he's fulfilling a promise and things. Especially when we get to the end, I'll mention that. Um, it says that Israel um, asked for that blessing and bowed before the Lord. It, it's an emphasis there that uh, we'll talk about that at the end of the sermon. But Genesis chapter 47 we're going to read the first three verses. No, I'm not. I'm going to read 13, 14, and 15. That's where we're at. So the first three verses of the section that we're in. All right. Meanwhile, the famine had become so severe that all the food was used up, and people were starving throughout the lands of Egypt and Canaan. By selling grain to the people, Joseph eventually collected all the money in Egypt and Canaan, and he put the money in Pharaoh's treasury. When the people of Egypt and Canaan ran out of money, all the Egyptians came to Joseph. Our money is all gone, they cried, but please give us food or we'll die before your very eyes. Okay. So we're going to look at stewardship today. We're going to look at stewardship from two different points of view. We've got one view that is looking at it from the bottom up. Joseph is under authority, isn't he? He's under the authority of the Pharaoh, and he has to honor Pharaoh in that authority. Now, the Lord has given Joseph the foresight to save grain for the last seven years, and then we know that there's going to be a drought for seven more years. We know that that drought has gone on for a while now, and where this story takes on in this story, I'm guessing we're about three and a half years in. I don't know that for sure, but I get some context clues by the end, and I'll point those out to you, okay? Because he says he's going to give them seed to plant the fields, and then the next year you'll be able to pay your taxes and, and have stuff for your, your food and things, right? So we're, as we look at this, though, when we start this, we understand that Joseph is under authority. And what that means is, is that he has to make an account to the Pharaoh. It's just like I have to make an account to the elders of the church, right? Um, I'm under authority. We're all under authority of the Lord. And so we have that as well. Joseph has that authority as well. He's under the authority of the Lord as well. But um, in this case, in this instance, he is a steward of the house of Pharaoh. And what is a steward? A steward is not a little guy that sits... No, I'm just kidding. Um, it's defined as a house manager, right? Steward is defined as a house manager. They watch over and they provide for the people left, they're left in charge of, right? And they do not own the property. 
They don't own any of the slaves or the possessions, but they are trusted with the management of these resources. And you'll see throughout Scripture that Jesus tells quite a few stories about stewards. He really does. We're going to hit on one of them in Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. I'm going to summarize the first eight verses, and then we'll read the last uh, five or so. Okay? The, the boss comes to this manager this steward, and he says, you've been mismanaging my household. Get my household in order. If you don't get it in order, there's going to be consequences. So the steward's like, oh no, I have really messed up. He's caught me, and I got to get this house in order. What am I going to do? I'm, nobody's going to hire me. I'm too proud to beg, and I'm too weak to wield a shovel. So he went around quickly to all the people that owed his master money, and he changed their debts. He says, you owe this amount. I'm going to quick strike it out and make it less. Uh, sometimes it was 1,000 bushels of wheat. He made it 800. It was, I can't remember. There's oil in there as well, and he, and he hacks that down. So when he gets fired by the, the household owner, he'll be able to come to these, those people that he reduced their debt and said, hey, I saved you a whole bunch of money, but you take me in. And he'll have people that were friendly for him. So this is really interesting. And Jesus says there's a lesson in this. It's interesting that he makes the crook the hero of the story, but not quite. You'll see it. All right. Jesus gives a lesson starting in verse 9. It says, here's the lesson. Use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. Then when your possessions are gone, they will welcome you into the, an eternal home. If you are faithful in little things, you'll be faithful in large things. But if you are dishonest in little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. And if you are untrustworthy about worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches of heaven? If you are not faithful with other people's things, why should you be trusted with things of your own? No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. Wow. That is a verse that should be read before every church-raising, fundraising campaign, right? Church fundraising campaign. There, I said it. I can English. That's right, with the best of them, just not all the time. <laughs> you cannot be enslaved to both God and money. And I look at that today. I look at the 90s debt that the church took on. We took it on in faith that God was going to help us pay it off. And that's not this church. We are debt-free. But I'm looking at a lot of other churches in the area, a lot of churches across the United States but what did they discover in the 2000s? Well, we discovered a little bit of health problems with our pastor. In 2010, our pastor's kind of ready to retire. We built this whole legacy around this pastor, and we still have 5 to $10 million worth of debt to pay off. We tried to refinance our loan, but it's still in trouble. And now he's retiring because of health reasons five years after that, and we are stuck still with quite a bit of debt. The problem with that debt 
is the people that said they would finance that debt have passed away. They moved on. They didn't agree with what he had to say, or they did agree with what he had to say. Now we moved into the new pastor, and they don't agree with him, and they left the church. Can you see how that can be a problem? So what happens in a church who is enslaved to debt? Something's got to be compromised, right? We either got to go after new money, or we got to hang on to our old money. So I will either people please to hang on to new money or old money. People pleasing for new money looks like this. I'm going to change my doctrine. I'm going to say that it's okay to have, I'm not going to talk about sin. I'm not going to talk about marriage because culture doesn't want to go there, so I'm not going to go there. And I'm not going to talk about anything else that might be a controversial, right? Is that love? If you did that to your kids, if you just love them all the time, what happens? Get a spoiled brat, don't you? And you have some problems come teenage years. Well, you could go hard the other way. I'm going to stick with my doctor and I'm going to go with this. And what happens? A lot of times people don't want to hear about their sins, so I'm going to lose my money. So now I'm, I'm not only can't serve God, but I'm serving my debt. That's the danger of debt in church. It's one thing I've learned over the last 10, 15 years. It's interesting. But Joseph does not do that, does he? He saves up for the campaign that he is going to have. How does he do that? With the foresight of the Lord. The Lord says you're going to have seven good years, seven bad years, and in these seven bad years, you're going to use this, the profits, in a sense, or the storage that you've stored up for to manage the seven bad years, right? Fortunately, here at White Rose, that we've had some of that, right? We've had times where we're not making budget and things, but we've stored up for the times when we needed that, those funds. And praise God that we've had the foresight to do that because there's not always going to be times where money's plentiful, is there? So Jesus, he gives this lesson out of this, and Joseph takes that lesson and he shows us good stewardship in his lifetime. He puts relationships first. We see this modeled in many, many of our congregants, many of our elders, actually. They put the relationship before the possessions. I've never heard the elders say, well, we're going to have to cut the youth budget back because... Well, one, the kids, they destroy the church more than they build it up. So we always have to put money into the church building. And, and you know, that they're just a bunch of trouble anyway. And so we got to keep the heat on for Sunday morning. So we're going to cut the funding for youth in Sunday evening. It's never happened before. Matter of fact, it's the opposite of that. No, we need that budget. Is that what you need? Yep. Okay, we'll make it work. Food pantry. We've had some trimming on the food pantry, right? But whether they've always told you, Miss Judy, they always said, if you need it, it's going to be there every time. And that's something that's important. Because when we minister in those areas to our community, whether it's the kids, whether it's here on Sunday morning, whether it's in Sunday evening and Thursday nights, we always have an opportunity to serve 
and do that without the burden of worrying. That's something I really appreciate about White Rose, okay? Once we, we go, we walk together. That's something that helps me serve and serve without hindrance and walk forward. So he puts the relationships first before the possessions. He makes a way for all the parties to be satisfied, thinking of the relationships he needs to keep in place. He's got to satisfy the Pharaoh, right? He's got to make sure that we have everything on the books, that we are going to still make a profit out of this and things, and he's a manager after all. That's part of his relationships and things that he needs to do. But he also needs to satisfy the people because if the people decide they're going to riot, then that's not good either, right? So he's got to be a manager of his household. The relationship between he and his boss, it kind of goes like this. As we read in the call to worship, Ephesians 5, 5 through 8 says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters. Okay? Employees, obey your employers. Okay? That's the same thing that we'd say, say today. With deep respect and fear, serve them sincerely as you would serve Christ. Try to please them at, at all the time, not just when they're watching you. As slaves of Christ, do the will of God with all your heart. Work with enthusiasm as though you're working for the Lord rather than for people. Remember that the Lord will reward each one of us for the good we do, whether we are slaves or free. Now, where did this practice hit home for me? As many things did, it hit home in the calf barn, right? The calf barn at wintertime, when the straw that the they, they get messy calf pens, right? And so you get one of those times where it all thawed out. And so then everything that's sweating up through the concrete and everything, it just, it just makes your straw pens messy. And the calves would get messy. So what do you got to do? You got to clean the calves up, pens almost every single day. And so I finally discovered that if I get into the calf pens and clean out their messes on an individual basis, then I could didn't have to clean them every single day. Kind of like the cat box, right? Manage the cat box well, you're, you're good. Is that something I like to do? Do I like to manage poop? I don't like to do it with my kids, I don't like to do it with my cats, and I didn't like to do it with my calves, right? And so this was something that was in my heart that I really don't want to do this. I have a hard time doing this. And the Lord really worked on me in these verses and in Colossians 3.23, it is not about you. It is about you serving the Lord. How are you going to serve the Lord? I can do it by respecting my father. He owns these calves, and I can honor him by keeping his calves clean so they're healthy, so they become better milk cows and steers that we can sell and things. So when it comes to your boss, we have an attitude when it comes to our boss as well. My question is, how do you talk to them? Do you talk positively or negatively about our boss with our coworkers? And that can be tough. Ah, uh, yes, we know good old Billy Bob, right? Or whoever it may be. How about to their face? 
Do we treat them with respect when we talk to them? Well, I talk to him just like I do around his back as I do in front, but is any of that respectful? That can be rough. How have you served your boss this week? Have you gone above and beyond? Or did you do it just enough to get by? It says in this passage to do it like we are serving Christ. Are we doing that? That's something that we can do. Colossians 3.23 says, Work willingly at whatever you do, just as you were working for the Lord rather than for people. God is our boss. God is our customer as well. Right? And we want to serve them like we're serving Jesus Christ. Right? So if you need, if you're having a hard time remembering that, work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. I'm going to teach you some Christian gang signs this morning. That's right. Christian gang signs look like this. See, you got to do it with your right hand because it's opposite. See, three, two, three. Okay? See, three to three. So that's, that's what I do. See, three to three. You know, work, work willingly at whatever you do as though you're working for the Lord rather than for people. Colossians 3. 23. It is something that we do as a lifestyle. It is part of worship. We don't just worship on Sundays when we sing songs. It is a worship when we work every single time. So serve your boss as an act of worship to the Lord. Is it okay to provide feedback to your boss in private if they allow you to do so? Yeah, it is. If you're, hey, can I speak to you for a moment? I didn't like how this was going down, or I thought I didn't want to disrespect the way you were saying this, but there's a better way to do this. I wanted to bring it to your attention. If you want to go ahead and show them, that's fine. Or I, if you allow me to show them, that's fine. But I would prefer to do it this way. And sometimes your boss is going to say, no, you can't do it that way. And you're going to walk out of that room, you're going to be grumbling, but you're going to say, I'm going to honor my boss because he told me to do that. And hopefully he will tell you why. Because if he doesn't, and if he treats you like that all the time, guess what? You also have an opportunity to get a new boss, too. You have a choice if you want to go get, and you're like, I am my own boss. I'm like, well, sorry, then you're going to have to work on your own character. <laughs> uh, learning, we need to learn to grow with our boss. What makes our boss tick? What makes him, um, what's he love? What's he hate? What are some of the things that we can do there? But to develop your skills and theirs, not only are you, you're building yourself up, you're building your boss up as well. If they are unaware that there's a better way, sometimes we need to take time to explain them, show them uh, through your hard work, and then that will earn the right to be heard, right? Complain up the chain, not down it. What do I mean by that? Well, if you ever disagree with your boss, you don't grumble with your coworkers saying, I can't believe that he made me do this. I, this is the worst thing I've ever done. No, you complain to your boss. You say, I don't agree with this. I don't like doing this. There's a better way to do this. There's more equipment that is better suited for the job. And they say, go do it anyway. Okay. So now when you're in the, with your coworkers, it's like, I can't, I can't believe he's making you do that. Well, he's the boss. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to listen to him. Right? That's hard to do, isn't it? That's really hard to do. But that is an act of worship. We're honoring our boss, and therefore, we're learning. Because why? 
Because there's going to be times in our lives when we don't understand what God is doing. We don't understand why this happened. And when we can honor our earthly things, when things we don't understand with, it's easier to honor God with things that we don't understand. Why did this happen? Don't know, but we're going to work with it. So we don't complain to those that are underneath of us or equal with us. We complain up. It's okay to voice it to your boss, but you do it in private so nobody else hears some of those things. Because God has called us all to be good stewards with the resources he has given us. How are we honoring God with our stewardship? Let's continue on. 16 through 22 of Genesis 47 says, Joseph replied, since your money is gone, bring back your livestock. And I will give you food in exchange for your livestock. So they brought their livestock to Joseph in exchange for food, in exchange for their horses, flocks of sheep, goats, herds of cattle, and donkeys. Joseph provided them, provided them with food for another year. But that year ended, and the next year they came again and said, We cannot hide the truth from you, my lord. Our money is gone, and all our livestock and cattle are all yours. We have nothing left to give but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your very eyes? Buy us and our land in exchange for food, and we offer our land and ourselves as slaves for Pharaoh. Just give us grain so we can live and not die. And so the land does not become empty and desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. All the Egyptians sold him their fields because the famine was so severe, and soon all the land belonged to Pharaoh. As for the people, he made them all slaves from one end of Egypt to the other. <clears throat> the only land he did not buy was the land belonging to the priests. They received an allotment of food directly from the Pharaoh, so they did not need to sell their land. Okay, I'm going to mention this last verse, verse 25. They didn't have about the priests. It doesn't necessarily fit into the story today, but I'm... I'm 90% sure it fits into the story in, in Exodus, okay? So as you go on, this is one of the reasons why it's in there, okay? But it doesn't necessarily fit for today. Stewardship, we just talked about a minute ago from the bottom up. Now we're going to talk about stewardship from the top down. Joseph is in upper management. He is second only to the Pharaoh. So he has to be a good steward not only of the people and the land, but of his family. So we have those three things we're going to look at. Stewardship of the land. Joseph manages the land. He buys back the livestock. Why would he buy back the livestock? There's two very good reasons you would buy back the livestock. Because you want to get it off the pasture lands and so they don't overgraze. Okay, You don't want to overgraze your land, so that's a practical one right there. And two, you do not want them to kill all the livestock so you don't have anything to restock your livestock after the, the famine is over. So he manages it in a bigger scale than what they can see. Okay, So he's like, I want you to kill off four-fifths of your, and this is just an example, I don't know if this really happened, but I want you to kill off four-fifths of your flocks, but I want you to keep your best so we can use them to restock, okay? You take care of them, make sure that they got lambs next year. Um, we have the wool and things of that, so we can take care of these, these things, right? 
So he buys the livestock, and the people sell them all their livestock, and the, Joseph doesn't want them to overgraze the land. He doesn't want them to kill off the livestock, as I mentioned before, for food. He allows them to have dignity in a time when life is miserable. Okay, we're going to have a payment plan to get these, these, this livestock back and things. There's going to be, he sets up a way to do that. The people sell them all the land. Again, a dignity thing, because he could have probably just taken it if he wanted to and let them all die, but he lets them work the land or take care of it as it needs to be, take care of his flocks now. And from this point forward, they're able to be taxed because the land all belongs to Pharaoh. And he says, we're going to be slaves too, right? Okay, so there's got to be a way to pay a payment for that. So remember, we are stewards over the things of this world. So think about this. What possessions has the Lord given to you? What possessions has the Lord given to you? What things do you cling to that we need to let go of for the Lord? Maybe it's your car. Maybe it's your house. Maybe it's your bank account. But as we talked about earlier, it could be your job. Maybe it's your status in your job. Maybe it's your family. Do you cling to your family? Or have you let the Lord be the ruler of it as well? Because really, do they belong to you? If you're a Christ follower, if you follow the Lord, you've surrendered your life to him. And in doing so, not only have you surrendered yourself, but you've surrendered your possessions, your family, and everything else that goes along with it. And so we are no longer in charge of these things unless the Lord tells us that we are in charge of those things. Does that make sense? So if the Lord says, okay, that car doesn't belong to you, I'm going to take it. It's his to take. But if he says, okay, I'm going to have you use that so you can get to work and things. I want you to manage it like it's my car and not your car anymore. The oil needs to be changed. It needs to be changed. The gas needs to be gone into it. It needs to be taken care of. And we take care of it not for ourselves, but as unto the Lord. So they're the Lord's. He asks us to manage them until he, he returns or he calls us home, right? One of the two. Either he comes back or we go to him. Otherwise, earthly possessions are going to be his. Okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9 says, For we are God's workers, and you are God's field, and you are God's building. Think about that. We are the field, we are the workers of the field, and we're the building. That's a little bit of a paradox there, as we see throughout Scripture many times. Not only are we the workers of the field, but we're the fields that need to grow as well. So Christ is our foundation. Christian character are building blocks, or maybe it's the stalks that we grow on, and our actions are what we produce to make a crop of other disciples of Jesus Christ, to make other white roses. And what we would say that was somebody surrendering and salvation to the Lord. 
And when we are good stewards of what the Lord has given us, it reflects his character. And that can be used as an opportunity to share Christ. When we look at it from that perspective, it's a little easier for me to share the gospel. When I look at it as I'm a steward in this world, and one of my responsibilities as a steward is to share the gospel, I better learn how to do that. How am I going to do that? I don't really know how to do that. One of the best tools I've learned in the last, I think, three years is the 22nd testimony. You're like, oh, here he goes again, right? This is who I was before Jesus. I was lost. I was broken. I didn't know where to go. Then Jesus happened. Now I'm found. I know what I'm going to do. I have a purpose in life, and I'm surrendered to him. Do you have a story like that? You're like, no, I don't have a story like that. Do you want to know how to get the story like that? I'd love to tell you. You better be able to follow up with the world was perfect, became broken. Jesus brings it back to perfection. That's a very short um, version of that. Do you want to surrender that kind of God right now? Yes, I hope so. Because God's called us to be good stewards with the resources he has given us. How are we honoring God with our stewardship? 23 through 26 kind of focuses on the people. It says, Joseph said to the people, Look, today I brought you and your land, or I bought you and your land for Pharaoh. I bought you... I provide you with seed so you can plant the fields. Why would they plant the fields? The rain's going to come this year, right? They're planting in faith that the, this is how I know the seven years are toward the end, okay? We're probably the last year and a half, okay? Then you will harvest it. on One-fifth of your crop will belong to Pharaoh. You may keep the remaining four-fifths as seed for your fields and as food for you, your household, and your little ones. You have... Saved our lives, exclaimed, may it please you, my Lord, to let us be Pharaoh's servants. Joseph then issued a decree still in effect in the land of Egypt that Pharaoh should receive one-fifth of all the crops grown in his land. Only the land belonged to the priests was not given to Pharaoh. So Joseph had to manage the people. How do you think he did on managing the people? Were they upset at him, or were they joyful? They were joyful, weren't they? That's interesting, because I don't think he was like a slick car salesman here. That he got them, well, what could we do? What, what is there something, you know, do you have anything that's of value? I don't know, maybe like, I don't know, yourself and your, and your land your house is on. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, you could sell me that stuff, and then you could afford this car, right? That's a slick salesman. That's not what Joseph does. Joseph says, I don't have to buy your land. I don't have to buy you and your labor, but I'm going to anyway because it benefits you, and in the long run, it'll benefit me as well and Pharaoh. And so I can talk Pharaoh into this, and it, it would be beneficial for both sides, right? But he doesn't have to. Can you see the correlation between Christ and us? 
Christ is going to say, okay, I'm going to come and die for you on the cross, but what are you going to do? Okay, you're going to surrender to me, but I don't need you to surrender to me. Does Christ need us? Does he need the church? He doesn't really need us. He chooses to use the church, okay? And so that gives us a responsibility as Christ followers to be good stewards of what he has given us, eternal life, and share it with other people who can share it with other people. First Timothy, or 2 Timothy 2.2. Yeah. Huh. Can you see how our stewardship works in our daily lives? I always think this is kind of funny coming from a, a guy that's not very, I wouldn't say I'm not a good steward. I'm not very organized steward, okay? And so when I see this mapped out in a guy like Joseph, it helps me become more organized. As I've gone, I have been blessed with a very organized wife. And I've come alongside, and I've become more organized through watching her. And I remember talking with Craig when I was young, young pastor back at Mount Olive. And um, just kind of defining some of my talents and stuff. And I said, I'm, I'm pretty weak when it comes to organizing things because we were talking about what are we going to do next Sunday because he could see that it was becoming a burden for me to organize this all, all the stuff. And I, I'm like, I really don't know. Um, that's starting to weigh on me. And he's like, well, you'll get better as you get going. As you get along, this is something you'll need to work on. And I have. You know what I did a little bit after that? Every Sunday night, I put it on a Google calendar and that's what we've done for the last seven years. <laughs> we just look at that. And if I don't like the idea, then I change that, that out. But now I already have a resource up here that I know that this is what we could do for Sunday night youth group. So Joseph manages the people. Joseph, they don't die in the land. They don't die. Their livestock is not destroyed without being managed. The crops have an opportunity to be planted back. He gives them responsibility. He gives them responsibility. They work the land for Pharaoh and Joseph, and they're able to work off their debt as indentured servants, okay? They're not necessarily slaves if we see slavery. They are, okay, we have agreed to go into this for a set amount of time or set fee, and that was one-fifth of their crop. Now forever, because Pharaoh owns the land, okay? And they have leased out their labor, in a sense, right? That's what more of an indentured servant is. That's more what slavery would be. They also get to learn that trade, in a sense, that they have, whether it's farming, whether it's uh, the guy working on the docks, or the guy that is... On, out on the boat fishing for alligator or crocodiles. It's crocodiles probably, right? Now a crocodile. Joseph has preserved enough seed to replant the fields, and the payment is one-fifth. It's 20%, which seems maybe quite a bit a lot, but if you look at our taxes today, that would be a steal for us today, and especially in the state of Illinois. You're like, I wish I could do 20%, right? That's twice the tithe is what... Um, Baruch pointed out. So this is to feed for seed for the following year, to feed your families, and for profit. 
However you say, see fit for the forfeits, it's up to you. The people are excited about the deal because with the seven years of famine, they would be tempted to eat all that grain, eat all the livestock, and have nothing left. But Joseph had managed it so they have seed. And they, will be able to, they would have been left with nothing, but Joseph was able to see the bigger picture where the people maybe couldn't. This applies to the church. As we're called back to give to the Lord in our first fruits, right? The Lord has given it to us all anyway, and so he asked for the first fruit offering to give back to him. That's why we give tithes and offerings. It shows it's an act of surrender, it's an act of worship that we give to the Lord. Okay? The relationship between he and the people, it says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 9, it says, Masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Don't threat, threaten them, but remember, you both have the same master in heaven, and he has no favorites. This can go with the people you manage. Do not have favorites. If you're a coach on a basketball team, you don't have a favorite player. If you are an employer with employees, you don't have favorites. You treat them all equal. They, if you don't, it will bring resentment to the others. It will bring strife in the workplace. The Lord does not favor anyone on this earth. He makes us all equal at the foot of the cross. And so we need to follow his example. And we should not have, we should not have favorites either. Serve others as we would have them would like them to serve us. The golden rule, Matthew 7, 12. Do unto others whatever you would like them to do unto you. We know how to love ourselves, don't we? Well, we need to treat others as we would treat ourselves. When someone's ignorant, do we bring the law of discipline down on top of them? It's probably not going to produce the results of coming along and show them why it was wrong, why we want it done right, and I'm going to have leniency on this time, but next time I will bring the law of discipline down on you. Because if now they know, and you know they know, now if they do it, they're going to do it out of defiance or rebellion. Luke chapter 6, verse 37 38 says, Do not judge others, or you will be judged. Do not condemn others, or you will come back or it will come back against you. Forgive others and you will be forgiven. Give and you, and you will receive. Your gift will return to you. Listen to this. Your gift will return to you. Now I think about this every time I feed, fed the cows after this. We would have crushed grain. You fill up your bucket and you do this to your bucket. And it's amazing. Press down. Shaking together. So you shake your bucket and it settles down in there. Room more running over poured into your lap the amount you will give will determine the amount you give back you can make that grain bucket a fifth more heavy by taking the air out about shaking it down pressing it in and you could feed the cows more if you needed to just the same container you had look at the commandments that the master has given to us don't judge how I look at this is you don't look at don't look at people in a situation they are in. You look at their hearts. They may be ignorant of why they're in that situation. They may be in that situation out of desperation. They may be in that situation because that's just how it is. 
So the next thing, we're, we're not supposed to condemn those people. Don't move in judgment in your heart. Oh, just one of those people. You know those type. That's moving in judgment, right? Oh, I see how it is. Do you? Did you ask? No, you've already judged. You've moved to condemn. You're condemning before you even work there. We're supposed to forgive. What is God going to do in their lives because of how you treated them in that instance? For if we forgive others, then we'll be forgiven. With mercy and respect. That's how... Um, We'll talk about that when, with Joseph at the end here and Jacob. Mercy and respect. Give and you will receive. Maybe not this lifetime, but definitely in the next one. The amount you give will determine the amount you get back. What happens when we hang on to something that belongs to the Lord like it belongs to us? You ever done that before? Try to use a talent and say, look at me. You know what God does that talent? He says, I'll take that. Right? Have you ever had that happen before? Because I have surely had that happen before. And you're like, now that I'm aware of it, I probably will have that happen too. Oh boy, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have told you that. Right? But our heart becomes corrupted by the desires for things of this world, the things of money. It says in 1 Timothy 6.10, it says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the truth true faith and pierce themselves with many sorrows. When our hearts go astray, we become a danger of losing our salvation. When our hearts become subject to money rather than the Lord, we are in danger of losing our salvation. Or if you're Calvinist, you could say you never had salvation in the first place. It all works out the same, right? It's that paradox. God has called us to be good stewards with the resources he has given us. How are we honoring God with our stewardship? Let's finish it off. 27 through 31 says, Meanwhile, the people of Israel settled in the region of Goshen in, e in Egypt. They, were, they acquired property and they were fruitful and their population grew rapidly. Jacob lived for 17 years after his arrival in Egypt. So he lived 147 years in all. As, at the, as the time of his death drew near, Jacob called his son Joseph and asked him, Please do me this favor. Put your hand under my thigh and swear that you will treat me with unfailing love by honoring this last request. Do not bury me in Egypt. When I die, please take my body out of Egypt and bury me with my ancestors. So Joseph promised, I will do as you ask. Swear that you will do it, Jacob insisted. So Joseph gave his oath, and Jacob bowed humbly at the head of his bed. Wow. Let me break down the last one. Joseph is a steward to his family. Joseph invests in his family. You see this, especially back in verse 12. It says he does this. Um, he gives food allotment to his family, especially the little ones. He says that er earlier in all of Egypt. Make sure that you have food for your families and even the little ones. Right? He's always looking at the next generation as something that's always been on his mind. 
It probably means that he has gone without, because when you go without, you know you need to provide for those things. Jacob reminds Joseph of the promised land of the Lord. Jacob has Joseph swear that he will bury Joseph in the promised land. Verse 29, put your hand under my thigh and swear to me. Okay, We're going to talk about this more next week about when he crosses his hands with Manasseh and Ephraim. Okay, We're going to talk about why uh, Jacob does that. And it's a really interesting story. So stay tuned to that. So put your hand under my thigh. Okay, now we got to get a little bit more adult right here, okay? When he says, put your hand under my thigh, this is like a handshake, but it's more than a handshake, okay? And when he says, put my hand under your thigh, he's not talking about his thigh, folks. He's talking about, put your hands on my testicles, okay? How much control does somebody have when they have you by the testicles? They have all the control, right? How much does Jacob trust Joseph? Completely, right? So when we go into agreement, men, with the Lord, in a sense, the Lord has got us by the balls, right? To say it more, a little more crass. So notice Jacob's reaction. He insists on it to Joseph. He insists that it's done this way. Promise me you will do this. And he hum- bowed humbly and he worshiped the Lord. Okay, this is an act of mercy and truth, as Baruch pointed out to me during the study this week. When he has you like that, this is an act of mercy and truth because Joseph could either crush him or or keep him intact, which which is the mercy part. And the truth is that since you have all that authority, I'm going to follow through since I was in your hands like that. Wow, pretty amazing, huh? So he bowed humbly and worshiped the Lord and remembered why he was in Egypt because he disobeyed the Lord and had to go down there in the first place. And so he longed to be out. He longed for his bones to come out of Egypt. Remember, bury me in the promised land like I was supposed to if I was obedient. Okay? There's a lament in this from Jacob due to his sin. He was looking forward to the day when his people and his family come back to the land that God had promised them. How do you know that, Pastor? Where are you getting that from? I don't see that in the passage. I see that in Hebrews chapter 11. Right? He was longing for the day that he could get back to the promised land. They knew it. The author of Hebrews did Uh, That's where I get that from. I think it's verse 28, but I'm not 100% sure. It's in chapter 11, though. God has called each of us to be good stewards with the resources he has given us. How are we, how are you honoring God in that stewardship? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for our time together. We thank you that you give us the opportunity to surrender to your will. Lord, we don't always know what that means. We don't always know what... Uh, that entails, but we thank you and we praise you for the opportunity to find out. Lord, we thank you that you have given us the opportunity to live on this 
world in your grace. In this age of grace, Lord, we ask that we would come to know you in a mighty way, that we would surrender our, our lives, our possessions, our families to you, and that we would grow in the discipleship of Christ Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us the disciple-making way of life in Christ Jesus. As we go through every part of this day, help us to love you and to love the people who cross our path, starting with our family. Don't let us miss the adventures you are sending our ways to live and to speak the good news about Jesus today and draw our hearts to you and to specific people you want us to pull close for Jesus-like disciple-making friendships. By your word and spirit, transform us into followers of Jesus who love you, who love people, who make disciples, who make more disciples ad infinitum. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed. Thank you.